service. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock-a-rolla. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Joe Namath are insane. He received death threats so credible that federal agents were sent to watch over him. He gambled with some of the highest-ranking members of the mafia. He was accused of a vicious assault by an editor at Time magazine. He made his way through seemingly every bottle of Johnny Walker in New York and a large segment of the female population as well all while playing the role of Sunday gladiator on two knees that were barely operable. And Joe Namath was also part of some of the greatest moments in sport history. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't a great sports moment. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Studio 12 MK1. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights from WPIX of a broadcast of the New York Yankees' 3-2 victory over the Chicago White Sox at Yankee Stadium. And why would I play you that specific slice of Bronx Bomber cheese could I afford it? Because that was one of the biggest sporting events on June 6, 1969. And that was the day that Joe Namath took a stand against the press and against the league that made him famous by retiring in the prime of his career just months after his Super Bowl victory, forever changing what it meant to be a superstar. In this episode, death threats, vicious assaults, gambling with the mafia, and Joe Namath. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, season six, Sportsland. January 1965, Miami, Florida. The Texas Longhorns were kicking the shit out of the Alabama Crimson Tide. Time was running out in the first half, and the Orange Bowl was starting to look like a foregone conclusion. Bear Bryant, the legendary Alabama coach, stalked the sidelines. He was pissed. The Tide were supposed to roll. It's what they did. They were national champions. And this game was just a formality. 
a showcase of their dominance on the first ever primetime broadcast of a college football game. But the tide weren't rolling. The tide were getting worked. This is not what was supposed to happen. They were supposed to have their starting quarterback, Alabama's all-time leader in completions, pass attempts, yardage, and touchdowns. They were supposed to have Joe Namath. But a knee injury during practice earlier in the week kept the star senior off the field. Joe Namath didn't care about a knee injury. He didn't care that he had a pro football contract on the table. And he didn't care that the game had no bearing on his team's standing as national champions. This was about pride. And Joe Namath wanted to play. But midway through the second quarter, Bear conceded, and Joe got the ball. Joe completed one pass, then another, and then another. Alabama marched 87 yards for a touchdown drive to cut the lead to seven. The scoreboard read 21 to seven as the second quarter ended, but the players in the Alabama locker room could feel the energy shifting, especially with number 12 under center. Even though he was hobbled, working with a bum knee, Joe Namath battled the entire second half, putting his rocket arm and understanding of the game on display. He zipped balls into receivers' hands. He called audibles to adjust to the formations. He threw the rock with reckless abandon, unafraid to gamble for the big payout. And the gambling paid off. Alabama cut the Texas lead to just four, but the clock was still ticking. Alabama got the ball back one more time, and Joe Namath did what Joe Namath did best. He led a furious drive down the Texas six-yard line. All the Tide had to do was punch this in, and they'd complete a legendary comeback. And they pounded the ball up the center with fullback Steve Bowman. Once, twice, three times, no dice. Fourth down. Joe Namath took his place under center. He scanned the Texas defense, which now doubled as a brick wall. And the Tide had one last shot to punch the ball into the end zone. And the only option was to let it all hang loose. As the clock dwindled, Joe took the snap. He dropped back and scanned the field. Every receiver was covered. And then he saw it, daylight, a crack in the Texas defense. Joe tucked the ball. This wasn't about pride anymore. This was about commitment. On his bad knee, Joe Namath ran in what seemed like slow motion as the Texas defenders read the play and collapsed to him. Glory for Alabama, for his teammates, and for Joe Namath was just yards away. Buried on the ground under a sea of orange and white, Joe stretched out ball first, but he couldn't reach the end zone. Although Alabama lost the game, Joe Namath was still named most valuable player. Viewers at home watched him and knew he was ready for prime time. They knew he was a tough son of a bitch, and they knew that he was electric. They knew they needed him. But Joe needed surgery. His knee was now a special kind of fucked up. His doctor told him two things. One, he had the knees of a 70-year-old, and two, he should never play football again. Joe didn't pay much mind to the doctor, and neither did Sonny Werblin. The former president of MCA Records and current owner of the New York Jets, Sonny Werblin could give a shit about what Joe Namath's doctor had to say. Sonny was more a businessman than a football fan, and Sonny's business was entertainment. Sonny worked with all the big names, Frank Sinatra, Liz Taylor, Ed Sullivan, Gene Kelly. When he bought the New York Titans a few years earlier, he immediately changed their name to the Jets, reflecting his obsession with the future. And then he changed their colors to green, reflecting his obsession with money. Sonny had plenty of money, 
enough to offer the Alabama quarterback with a smile as bright as Times Square $427,000 and a brand new Lincoln Continental. Jet green, of course. This was during a time when the top pro players were earning somewhere around 20 grand a season. Fuck that knee injury. Joe's knee wasn't as important as Joe himself. The upstart AFL needed to compete with the NFL. They needed stars. And Joe Namath wasn't just a star. He was the Jets' leading man. 1967, New York City. Joe Namath made his way through the smoke-filled pussycat lounge and felt his knee act up again. Damn thing was still giving him problems two years later. Nothing that the pussycat couldn't fix. Here, at one of the city's hippest hangouts, the drinks were cheap, the service was decent, and the women were beautiful. So naturally, Joe Namath, a man who had been suspended multiple games during his four years in college for violating the team's no drinking policy and who, by his own account, slept with over 300 women during that same time, loved the place. The club's vibe paired perfectly with Joe's swinging bachelor pad on the East End, the one with the massive llama skin rug, custom marble bar, a mattress that took up most of the bedroom situated directly under a mirror. You never knew what the woman up in the mirror would look like from night to night. Sometimes, they even looked differently than how they looked when you picked them up at the Pussycat. But Joe wasn't at the Pussycat Lounge looking for companionship. Not tonight. He positioned himself at the bar and ordered a double shot of the only thing he was looking for, Johnny Walker Red. He needed the double to deal with his right knee. He'd just gone under the knife for the second time, and the fucking thing screamed out in pain. A couple of shots of whiskey would shut it up. Joe looked around. He was drinking alone. His good friends Mickey Mantle and Jack Lambert typically joined him until 3 or 4 in the morning. Sometimes the night after games or even the night before games. Tonight, though, they were nowhere to be seen. So he struck up a conversation with two strangers. The strangers were playing a simple game of liar's poker, and Joe joined in. Liar's poker is all about going in half-blind and hoping for the best. The perfect game for a quarterback who often took the fuck it, somebody's probably open down there approach before uncorking a deep ball. That strategy worked on the field, earning Joe an AFL Rookie of the Year award in two trips to the Pro Bowl. But tonight, he wasn't rewarded for the risk. Joe kept losing, and he kept polishing off doubles of Johnny Walker. He ordered another. He didn't know these two guys personally, but he didn't care. He really liked them. They were all right, they were good fellows. The three of them kept laughing and gambling. Joe was having such a good time that he didn't even notice the two men in dark suits walk up behind him. Jack Danahy was midway through his late night downtown beat. He and his partner were busy keeping tabs on men like the ones Joe was sitting with. Danahy tapped Joe on the shoulder and filled him in. Those two guys he was playing cards with, they were members of the Lucchese crime family. Joe scoffed and went back to the game in his Johnny Walker. Danahy didn't quit. He wasn't a fan of the Jets, but he couldn't in good conscience let the fraternizing continue. Besides, Joe was getting taken for a ride in the game. But Joe didn't budge. He shook Danahy off. Danahy wouldn't let it go. He told Joe to scram. And Joe turned around very slowly, locked eyes with Danahy and said, Mind your own fucking business. A few weeks later, the FBI opened a file on Joe Namath. Joe had done nothing but draw attention to himself since arriving in New York. He was the fucking Beatles of the gridiron and he played by a different set of rules. He owned New York City. He had Mammy Van Doren, a blonde bombshell some pegged as the next Marilyn Monroe, drive onto the Jets' practice field in a Cadillac to pick him up for a date. Again, 
she drove onto the Jets' field in a Cadillac to pick the quarterback up to go on a date. He intercepted women from Mick Jagger in New York nightclubs. He wore mink coats and sunglasses on the sidelines like a boss during preseason games that he didn't play in. He wore white cleats when everyone else in the league was wearing black. He drank, he gambled, he smoked, and he grew his hair long. He did all this during a time when the NFL had long been a homogenized factory for football players with flat personalities. And even as Joe worked magic on the field, he heard the jeers from the crowd who called him a hippie. They questioned his sexuality, and the press labeled his behavior as offensive, off-putting, and oversexed. And the longer Joe Namath stayed in the spotlight, he didn't just become more in demand, he became dangerous. August 1967, Peekskill, New York. Joe Namath's knees hurt like hell, but not his surgically repaired right knee. A strained tendon was now causing seething pain in his left kneecap, meaning he had to have an extensive tape job before every practice of the New York Jets summer training camp. Extensive tape job is another way of saying you spend all your time on the trainer's table. Tape goes on, tape comes off. His legs looked like the legs of a hairless freak. But chronic knee pain wasn't the only thing driving him crazy. Joe's eyes fell on a copy of that day's paper, and the press loved to write about him. Not just the injuries or how he played, but his personal life. Nothing was off limits. Sports Illustrated, Time Magazine, Life Magazine, The New York Post, The New York Times, they all had a different idea of who Joe was supposed to be. Another piece of tape was ripped mercilessly off Joe's knee, exposing a patch of red, irritated skin. Man, Fuck this preseason bullshit. Joe needed to get out of Jets camp, even if for a night. For a man who thrived under the bright lights of Manhattan and used the busy city as a stimulant, 40 miles up the Hudson River might as well have been Siberia. Joe hopped in his Lincoln and beat it back to the city with a teammate. He could break curfew as long as he did it with Joe Namath. And the star of the show didn't play by the same rules as everyone else. Back in the friendly confines of New York's Upper East Side, Joe and his teammate hit the bars. But once again, Multiple rocks glasses of Johnny Walker Red took the pain away. Finally, some respite. Finally, a moment's peace, not in the spotlight. It didn't last long. At a place called The Open End, Joe was spotted by Charles Parmeter, an editor for Time Magazine. Charles thought it was a good opportunity for a quick interview. Catch Broadway Joe in his natural environment, the early hours of the morning after a half dozen drinks. Shit, maybe he'd give Charles a headline. So Charles walked right up to Joe, his confidence peaking after a night of drinking. He slapped Joe on the back. Mind answering a few questions? Joe just stared at the reporter. The fuck was this? If Charles Parmeter wanted an interview, he could call Joe's publicist like everyone else. But Charles wouldn't quit. Come on, Joe, just a few questions. Give the people what they want, Joe. Don't leave them hanging, Joe. Joe's fuse was short. He snapped. He grabbed the reporter and slammed his head hard against the nearby cigarette machine. He held the reporter there, crushing his mug into the glass. Nothing but packs of Pall Malls and Winstons to stare at while he got an earful. For 10 or 15 minutes, Joe held Charles Parmeter against the machine. He said the press were nothing but a bunch of creeps, 
lowlifes. He was fucking sick of them, all of them. But one of the guys Joe was with walked over and took it to the next level. He wound up and brought his fist directly into the reporter's pinned down head. And he did it again, over and over, until Charles Parmiter's face got a workout while a third guy kept an eye on the crowd and made sure no one interfered with the beatdown. Hold up, that's all bullshit. The New York Times may have printed that story a few weeks later, but it was all conjecture. Joe, in all actuality, in reality, Joe Namath barely touched the reporter Charles Parmiter. What did happen was that Charles Parmiter obnoxiously followed Joe around the bar, trying to get him to spill something. Joe wasn't in the mood for an interview, especially not with a half-in-the-bag reporter. So he told Charles Parmiter that he wasn't answering any of his stupid questions. And when the reporter wouldn't take a polite rejection for an answer, Joe pushed him on his way out of the door. And Joe figured that was that. But that was not that. It was far from it. The press was hot on the fabricated story, and days later, a portion of Charles Parmiter's affidavit was posted in papers across America, word for word. It didn't seem to matter what the real story was. This story was better. This story had Joe Namath as the most dangerous motherfucker in America. Which is, of course, kind of ridiculous. So, Joe Namath sued for defamation. The case fell into the black hole of the legal system. A year and a half later, it remained unresolved. And by that time, Joe's notoriety had only grown, and so had the target on his back. It was January of 1969, and Joe Namath and the Jets were in Miami, preparing for the biggest game of their lives, the Super Bowl. Just weeks before, the Jets were in town for a 31-7 beatdown of the Dolphins. But Joe wasn't thinking about the Dolphins trashing or the upcoming Super Bowl against the Baltimore Colts. He was thinking about the death threat that had been phoned into Bachelors 3 the bar he co-owned back in Manhattan, and about the strange men who followed him around wherever he went in New York City. He was thinking about all of these things when the loud knocking started on the door of his Miami hotel room. Joe sat frozen on the hotel room bed. Who was on the other side? Cops? Crazed fans? Maybe the DA's office? I mean, Joe had been accused of fixing games that season when he, on more than one occasion, threw four or more interceptions and jet losses. But that was ridiculous. Joe played to win. Besides, he thought there were easier ways to lose a game than by throwing interceptions. Did they even understand how football worked? Another knock rattled the hinges. This was the other side of the coin of fame. Sure, the pleasure cruise was nice. The never-ending trail of waitresses, stewardesses, and playboy bunnies. The public adulation for all the on-field and off-field scoring that you did. But there was also that ever-present feeling that you just weren't safe that someone was out to get you. And there was another knock at the door, this one louder and more aggressive than the one before. Joe pushed himself up slowly, carefully placing light pressure on the knee from which the teen doctor had just drained multiple ounces of fluid. It was in a brace, but it still fucking hurt, something awful. Joe limped over to the door. His hand found the doorknob and he swung it open. And it was the feds. The fuck did they want? The agent said they were there to do what they called a quote-unquote routine check. It made Joe uneasy, but he let them in. He watched anxiously as the agents inspected every inch of his room. Finally, they turned to Joe and informed him that they believed the man who called him the death threat a few weeks ago was in Miami. Joe felt a pit in his stomach. And what the fuck should he do about it? Nothing, the feds told him. Nothing. The agents assured Joe that he'd be safe in his room. They deemed that his location was acceptable and reasoned that if someone were to attempt to kill him, they'd have an impossible escape ahead of them. Very reassuring. Joe tried to shake it off. He tried to focus on the Colts. 
the team he'd face a handful of days later in the Super Bowl, a team that had only lost one game that year, a team that was an 18-point favorite to win, 18-point spread. It was clear how little America thought of the Jets and how little they thought of their league, the American Football League, the AFL. It seemed that every publication in the country had already decided that the Colts would pummel the Jets and that the National Football League, the NFL, would retain its supremacy. And the AFL was still years away from being relevant. And Joe Namath, well, Joe Namath would be exposed once he started playing real competition. Fuck that, Joe thought. Joe was fed up with it all. The people who counted his team out. The knee pain. The threats to his safety that required a quote-unquote routine check from federal fucking agents. It was a lot to absorb. And Joe Namath needed a drink. Joe Namath jumped into the driver's seat of the Cadillac and rolled down the streets of Miami. The breeze felt good. He felt good. Despite all those barking dogs in the press claiming the league he played in was second rate, fuck him. Joe was heading to Miami Spring Villas, where he would accept the Miami Touchdown Club Award as the top football player in the league. This was what it was really about for Joe. He'd effortlessly slung the ball downfield all year. He was an AFL all-star. He led his team to an 11-3 record into the goddamn Super Bowl. Try and doubt me now, second rate my ass. But when his name was called, he made his way to the podium with that trademark Joe Namath swagger and started running through the typical thank yous. His teammates and coaches, both at Alabama and in New York, and of course, the fans. He was feeling the love. He leaned into the microphone and smiled. He also wanted to thank the single ladies in New York, without whom this award wouldn't have been possible. Whether or not Joe said it tongue-in-cheek, the crowd didn't care. And even if half of them were amused, Joe could only hear the doubters. The old conservatives who would have been just fine with their professional football players coming off of a conveyor belt, the ones who were sick of hearing about Joe Willie Namath in every publication they read. They told him in no uncertain terms to shut up and sit down and that the Colts were going to kick the Jets' asses. Joe's smile faded, his dimpled jaw set. He narrowed his eyes and looked out into the room. He knew the shitstorm that the next few words would bring. He knew they would attract the attention he was so desperately trying to avoid after being told his life was in danger. But Broadway Joe was gonna be Broadway Joe. Fuck it, he let it fly. The Jets will win on Sunday, he said. I guarantee it. The Miami press was on him immediately. This was the biggest football game in the world, and the Jets were the biggest underdogs of all time. He guaranteed it? And for the next three days, reporters berated him constantly. Joe stood by his half-buzzed words. He offered analysis of the Colts' team, masterfully pointing out their flaws in the way only a man who had watched endless hours of game film and had an insanely high football IQ could. But his words were twisted into arrogance and cocksure braggadocio, instead of an honest man giving an honest opinion. The night before Super Bowl III, Joe Namath was back in his hotel room. And there would be no staying out till three in the morning before a sojourn back to somewhere quieter with a lovely lady. Joe didn't feel like bumping into any more reporters out on the streets of Miami. He'd let his play do the talking for him. But suddenly, there was a knock at the door. And then, another. And these knocks weren't as hard and calculated like the ones the federal agents delivered. And they were soft, reserved, delicate. And Joe stood up from the bed and once again moved towards the door. He had no idea what waited for him on the other side. 
Hello? He cracked the door open slowly, and then he carefully peeked out into the hallway. A short time later, Joe Namath laid awake in his hotel bed with the woman he found outside his door. She was laughing about how her father was a Colts fan, and here she was, currently sharing a bed with Broadway and Joe the night before that goddamn Super Bowl. If this was an attempt to throw Joe off his game, though, it didn't work. The next evening, Joe's guarantee was validated. The Jets emerged the triumphant victors of Super Bowl III, and Joe Namath was named MVP. He trotted off the field with one finger extended in the air to let everyone know the future was now. All of a sudden, the press that once ran him through the ringer was doting. Women lined up by the dozens in every city Joe visited. He had to be smuggled in and out of places he was visiting like he was living his own hard day's night. He allegedly spent an undisclosed hour AWOL on the golf course with Mickey Mantle and two women in the middle of a celebrity golf tournament. He was offered book deals, major commercials, roles in movies and TV. Apart from a solemn visit to Vietnam to help lift the spirits of American troops, Joe Namath ripped through the months after the Super Bowl in a haze of alcohol and celebration. But for Joe, the good times couldn't possibly continue to roll at this speed. Weeks later, the NFL sent the Jets a list of names and photographs of patrons of Joe's bar, Bachelors 3. These were people Joe was to avoid. Joe studied the photos. The men with the slicked back hair and the European cut suit certainly looked familiar. A league representative sat down across from Joe. He confirmed that these men were known gamblers and they had been seen in Joe's Lexington Avenue nightclub. There was no denying it. And Joe, being honest, didn't deny it. These men had definitely been in Bachelors 3. Joe had seen them around. Hell, he even spoke to a few of them, but who cared? It's not like Joe had control over every person who walked into his bar for a drink. And Joe met hundreds of people anytime he was out in public. Everyone wanted to shake his hand. Didn't mean anything. And also, who the fuck cared if they gambled? Half the country gambled. Half the fans that packed the stands during every pro football game ever played were gambling. And the NFL representative was worried that Joe wasn't grasping the severity of the situation. And these photos weren't only of a half dozen bookies and lottery operators. They were also of men with more nefarious means. Men who were smack in the middle of Senator Bobby Kennedy's crosshairs in an effort to clean up New York. Men with ties to major crime families in the city. This felt too familiar. The league representative pointed out the suspects. Carmine Persico, boss of the Colombo family. Thomas Tebow's Mancuso. La Cosa Nostra, part owner of Joe's home away from home, the Pussycat Lounge, recently indicted on narcotics charges. And Carmine Chimuti, boss of the Lucchese family yet another proprietor of the Pussycat. Joe bit his lip. He thought he was clean, a fucking Pussycat. The representative across the table said, I told you those guys were trouble. This representative wasn't just the head of NFL security. He wasn't just another suit. He was Jack Danahy, ex-FBI, the guy who'd confronted Joe two years prior during those shitty hands of liars poker. The man Joe told to go fuck himself when he wouldn't leave him the fuck alone. And Joe hired a team to look into the list when he first received it. He'd done his due diligence. They told him there was nothing to worry about and there was nothing going on at the club, but it didn't matter. This came from the top, from Commissioner Pete Rizal himself. Dana, he told Joe it was a bad look. Joe was the face of football, but now in part because of these associations, he was on President Richard Nixon's official shit list. And the media had a field day with this. Dennehy told Joe that he had to make some sort of gesture to prove the rumors weren't true. Joe was taken aback. To prove what wasn't true, 
He liked the commissioner. He respected and loved the game too much to ever gamble on it. But this was too much. He was tired of the world trying to control him. Tired of everyone thinking Joe Namath needed to stand for something. Joe Namath was about having a good time. He did nothing wrong, he knew that. But he was being made to look like a stooge in front of the entire world. For what? To knock him down a couple of pegs? Fuck that. This wasn't a debate. It wasn't up for discussion. It was an ultimatum right there in his contract. He wasn't to associate with known criminals. And Joe Namath had to shut down his bar. It was either that or he could quit football. Joe Namath sat in a chair at Bachelors 3, the bar at 798 Lexington Avenue that he owned with Bobby Van, the Broadway actor, and Ray Abruzzi, a fellow Jet. Joe, Bobby, and Ray were the three bachelors that gave the place its name. And the bar was Joe's sanctuary. He wasn't about to give it up. Not for Pete Rizzo, not for Jack Danahy, not for anyone. He stared out at the reporters and camera crews gathered in front of him. He fidgeted with his hands. Joe was used to press conferences, post-game interviews, media coverage, but he had never experienced this before. He knew the risks involved with what he was about to do, but he had no other choice. The tears in his eyes threw him off. He was angry, so angry that he was crying about it. Jesus Christ. He was damned if he did and damned if he didn't. If he stood by his convictions and the truth, that he was not involved in an idiotic venture like gambling on games he was playing in, he would have to give up the game he loved. If he left Bachelors 3 as the NFL demanded, he would look like he was hiding something. Just like his performance in the Orange Bowl some four years earlier. If Joe was going down, he was going down on his terms. He leaned into the two dozen microphones in front of him and let the world know which path he was choosing. His pride won out. He was retiring from professional football. Joe wiped the tears away as he stumbled through his announcement. He didn't look like the gladiator or the gridiron who had played through excruciating pain, or the playboy who had seemed larger than life. And he certainly didn't look like the sports star turned celebrity turned icon. Joe Namath looked human. And the emotions hit him all at once. It was all real now. He was really hanging it up at just 26 years old in the prime of his career, merely five months after reaching the pinnacle of the professional sports world. When the press conference ended, Joe was not in a celebratory mood. He forfeited his remaining two years of salary from the New York Jets, which was nothing compared to the endorsement money that would immediately dry out. Joe's lawyers estimated the move would cost him over $5 million, and that's around $40 million in 2022 money. But Joe had to do it. It was all about pride. It was, as Joe would say, about principle. The first few weeks of retired life went by slowly. Joe couldn't deny the feeling deeply embedded in his soul. Football was his life. Even with the physical pain of his fucked up knees, the long, arduous seasons in training, and the pressure that football brought to his life, Joe needed it. He couldn't live without it. He quickly sold his share in Bachelors 3 and returned to the Jets for the 1969-1970 season, but he'd made his point. Nobody was gonna tell Joe Namath how to live his life. And after football, 
Joe spent the following decades anchoring his own TV talk show, guest starring on sitcoms such as The Brady Bunch and Love Boat, and appearing in Hollywood films. He also revolutionized the way athletes endorsed products and made money outside of the game. And although a rash of injuries would mean Joe never again reached the Super Bowl, he played out a career that earned him a gold jacket and a place in the hallowed halls of the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. Joe Namath was more than a player. He was an icon. He was an idea. He brought a personality and a spark to the NFL that broke the mold of what an athlete could or couldn't be. He instituted a fierce individualism and honesty that, at times, was too raw for those around him to handle. He played great football and changed the game forever. And he did it his way. He decided when the game was on and when the game was over. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. It's a show of guys.